On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. I'll be reading verses 11 through 16. So Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16, beginning now in chapter 4, verse 11, where we read, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Pastor Stuart Briscoe once told about an incident that happened the very first week that he was pastor of Elmbrook Church. The woman came up after the service and asked him if he would find the answer to a technical question that she had about a particular Bible text. And Briscoe replied, no, I will not. And the woman got a shocked look on her face, as you can imagine, and she thought she must not have heard him correctly. So she said, what? And Briscoe said, no, I will not find the answer to your question. And she looked at him as if to say, well, what in the world are we paying you for? And he continued, but here's what I will do. I will show you how to find the answer for yourself. And he proceeded to do that for her. You see, in that exchange, Stuart Briscoe was following a sound biblical philosophy of ministry based on our text. Rather than doing the work for that woman, He was equipping her for ministry. He was equipping her to do the work so that she would grow to maturity in Christ. Loved ones, one of the most crippling ideas to pervade the church over the centuries is that there is a special class of Christians called clergy who do all the work of ministry while the rest of the church sits sits back and lets them do it. As one man remarked, what does the layman really want? He wants a building which looks like a church, clergy dressed in the way he approves, service of the kind he's been used to, and to be left alone. 
Well, in our text, the Apostle Paul gives us a sound biblical philosophy of ministry for the local church. And he is saying that Christ gives to the church those with specific gifts in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry or service, which is what the word means, so that the body will grow to unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. Of course, we need to remember the context of our passage. Uh, Paul began this practical section of Ephesians chapter 4 in verses 1 and 2 with a statement on the Christian life, which he described as a walk, and he implored us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility and and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. And those two verses set the stage for all of the practical exhortations that Paul is going to make from chapter 4, verse 3, all the way through chapter 6, verse 20. And in those verses, Paul fleshes out for us what's involved in in really walking worthy of our calling. In other words, what's involved in, in actually living out the Christian life in the church and in the various community and household relationships. In verse 3, Paul's first exhortation was for us to eagerly put forth a full, intense effort to maintain with all vigilance the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In verses 4 to 6, Paul laid out the basis of our unity. He said, there is one body and one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And this is what we all share in common. And then lastly, In verses 7 to 10, we move from Paul's emphasis on unity in verses 4 to 6 to diversity within this unity. But this diversity has nothing to do with the various ethnicities, backgrounds, and natural talents of the individual members. Rather, it is a diversity in the area of spiritual gifts, a diversity that actually contributes to the overall unity and growth of the body. But as we learned, in his infinite wisdom, Christ has given each and every believer a spiritual gift and then the enabling grace to use it in serving him for the common good, for the benefit of others, and for the building up of the body of Christ, all for the glory of God. And then in verses 8 to 10, Paul gave the reason why Christ is in a position to give gifts to his body. He descended, that is, he he came to earth to be born as a man, to live the perfect sinless life we could never live and to die the death that we deserve. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, he took captive in utter defeat Satan and his demonic host, death, sin, and the world, all of our greatest enemies overthrown by Christ's saving work. And then, having achieved dominion over all the powers and principalities, Christ ascended victoriously back to heaven and began to sovereignly distribute spiritual gifts to men, gifts that he had purchased with his own life. And now as we come to verse 11, Paul speaks of Christ not giving gifts to people, but in verse 11 of giving the persons themselves to the body of Christ. So let's begin now with verse 11 where Paul focuses on the gifted man Christ gives to the church for the unity and maturity of the body. Notice verse 11, Paul begins by saying, and he gave. And in the original, it's, it's emphatic. So it's actually, and he himself gave. That is, the resurrected, ascended Christ, he gave. He himself gave. And that is, he's given a spiritual gift to every member of his body, but he has especially gifted certain individuals with what we might call foundational gifts. 
Gifts which are necessary and essential for all other gifts and ministries. And he gives these gifted men to the body of Christ for the purpose of establishing churches to minister the word of God and to equip others for service in the church. And the Lord Jesus gives these leaders to the church not to do the work of ministry for the members of the body while they passively sit by and merely receive but rather to help prepare each one of them to actively serve in the ways that he has gifted them. And of course, when each believer then finds his place of service and, and then actually does his or her part, the whole body grows and attains an even deeper unity and maturity and fulfills its mission and ministry. And that's really verses 11 through 16 in a nutshell. But what Paul emphasizes here in verse 11 is that Christ himself has given gifted leaders to the church. And they are, they are not elected to this position, nor are, are these offices that a man achieves after serving in a number of lower roles, working his way up the ladder, so to speak. These, these offices are not given by seniority or time served. And these are not roles that a man takes for himself. According to Paul's teaching, a man doesn't call himself to these offices, nor does he enter the ministry or, or any other office in the church as a profession. You see, we have forgotten that it is Christ who calls and appoints men to these offices, and that we ourselves do not decide what we do in the church in any capacity. I mean, these are roles fulfilled by people the Lord Jesus himself sovereignly chooses and then enables their service. Notice again verse 11. And he gave, you know, and he himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And actually a better translation is, and he himself gave some to be. And I think most all of the other translations have it that way. And he himself gave some to be. And it's important for us to, take, to make note of the fact that the Lord Jesus does not call everyone to these offices, but rather some. As one commentator said, it is the Lord himself who chose the apostles, the prophets, and all others. He establishes these different offices, calls men to them, and gives them the ability to exercise the functions they are meant to exercise in that particular office. Here again, there is obvious inequality. The scripture itself teaches that exceptional honor is to be given to those elders who preach and teach, for that function is exceptionally important. There is a, a gradation of offices in the church. Some are more important and others are less important, but all are vitally essential. And so we are told these two things constantly in our mind. So we are to hold these two things constantly in our minds at the same time. The division of offices, the gradation of offices, and yet the fact that they are all equally essential and are all appointed by the Lord himself. So all have received the same grace. But there are different gifts for different believers. Different offices, different abilities, different callings in the church. We've been given, we've been given different functions, different roles and responsibilities. I mean, just as on a football team. I mean, you have a quarterback, you have linemen, pass receivers, a backfield, defensive linemen, defensive ends, linebackers, safeties, pre-safeties, depending on what kind of defense you're running. You know, different roles with different responsibilities, but all are essential. 
However, you usually don't want the defensive tackle playing quarterback. Why? Because there are different roles with different responsibilities. In the same way, the church needs people serving in different positions to be a unified and effective team. Some have gifts of encouragement. Some have gifts of helping. Some have gifts of hospitality and so on and so on. And some, a smaller and distinct group, have been called to unique positions of leadership within the church and then gifted accordingly. But as we learned last week, because all the spiritual gifts are given to us by grace, there is absolutely no place for being proud or or boasting if you've been called and gifted for a position of leadership. Because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4-7, for who sees anything different in you? Well, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so those in a more prominent you know, public position are, are to be humble. Because what we have has been given to us. The office has been given. The gift has been given. It's all, it's all of grace. The, the ability has been given. We, we have nothing that we have not received. And so we should never boast, never ever boast, and, and never ever look down on others who don't have the gift. And on the other hand, if you're the person in the, in the, in the humbler position, don't be envious, don't be jealous. You know, do not look at another and say, well, why has he got this gift and not me? Well, if he can do it, I certainly know I can. We're all to be content with the gift we've been given and the task that we've been called to. And we shouldn't care how insignificant it may seem to be because it is the Lord who has called each one of us and our gift, our role is essential, essential. So we should rejoice in our role and our gifting because it is Christ who has called us. It is Christ who has given us the gift and the ability. And then we're to joyfully use that gift for his glory and for the building up of the body. So there's no place for pride or, or envy because it is the Lord who distributes his grace gift to whom he chooses and in the measure he chooses. So instead, we we should admire one another's gifts and thank God for his grace and and blessing in the church, uh, or in in blessing the church with those gifts. And Paul now gives us a list of these gifted men. Look back at verse 11. And he himself gave some to be the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Paul lists these offices because they were foundational to the establishment of local churches, and because they are the ones primarily responsible for the proclamation and application of the Word of God to people's lives. And so he highlights these teaching offices, not because teaching is the only gift that matters, but rather because there is a great priority given to it in building the church. And the word of God is foundational to building a united and a mature church. And the moment the word of God begins to be diminished or compromised, guaranteed the church will become weak and sickly. Because it is the preaching and teaching of the word of God that empowers and energizes the people of God with their various gifts, which they use for serving in the body of Christ. And so he has given these gifted men to the church. Let's look at each one of these offices individually. 
First of all, Paul says Christ gave the apostles. The apostles. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Paul wrote, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And then he continues on with the list of spiritual gifts. And that statement there adds weight not only to the idea of divine calling, but also to the chronological significance, first, second, and third, in the giving of these gifted men to the church. The first of the gifted men in the New Testament church were the apostles. And the word apostle means someone who has been sent, or simply a messenger. And the word essentially means an an envoy. You could translate it delegate, ambassador, or messenger. And it was a very familiar term to the Jewish people as well as to the Gentiles. Because it referred to a, a special emissary who was sent out from a king or government official as a representative with legal authority to act on behalf of the king or on behalf of that government. In the New Testament, the word apostle had a general and particular usage. In the general sense, It was used of those sent out by a church on a mission. For example, it is used that way in Philippians 2.25 and 2 Corinthians 8.23, where it is translated messengers of the churches, referring to men appointed and sent on a mission as representatives of the churches. But an apostle in the particular or technical sense, which is the way Paul is using it here, is a term that cannot be applied to every Christian like the words believer or saint or or brother. The apostles were a very small, select group of men. In John's Gospel, Jesus said that he was sent by his Father into the world. And then speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as the apostle, the apostle. In other words, Jesus is the church's first example, the original apostle who exemplifies all that it means to be a faithful and true sent one of the Father. And Jesus chose some men to be his apostles. And there were requirements to be an apostle. You had to have seen and heard and experienced the living Christ. You had to have been with Christ, seen him risen from the dead, and as the word implies, been chosen, commissioned, and sent by him, personally sent by him. And Jesus chose 12 such apostles. They're listed in Matthew 10 by name. Uh, Luke 16, 13 says, He called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named Apostles. So Jesus named them, these men, apostles. There were 12 of them. One of them, Judas, an unbelieving apostate, committed suicide. And so in Acts chapter 1, Peter and the other 10 apostles sought the Lord and chose a man named Matthias to take the place of Judas, and then there were 12 again. And then one more was added later, the apostle Paul. Paul saw the resurrected Christ in a unique way when the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus and Paul was saved. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 20. Jesus also personally appeared to Paul on other occasions. Read about it, Acts 18, Acts 22, Acts 23, 2 Corinthians 12. So Paul had seen and heard, experienced the living Christ, been with Christ, seen him risen from the dead. That's an apostle. 
And so the term apostle, in the particular sense, in the technical sense, as Paul uses it here, is a special term referring to only those men who were specially called, commissioned, and sent, not by the church, not by any delegation, but by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This includes the twelve and Paul. And these select men were also enabled and empowered by God with the ability to do amazing signs and wonders to confirm their gospel message. In Romans chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Paul spoke of what Christ had accomplished through him to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power, he said, of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, Paul writing to the church at Corinth said, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. In Acts chapter 3, we have the account of Peter and John healing the lame man. In Acts chapter 9, Peter raised Tabitha from the dead. So the, the point is simply that the apostles were also given the ability to work signs and wonders. The apostles also received divinely inspired and authoritative revelation from God. Paul spoke of this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, where he wrote, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was which was, not made, or which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been, now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 1, where Paul is defending his apostleship and pronouncing anathema on anyone, even an angel from heaven, who preached any other gospel than that which he had preached to them, Paul said, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the apostle, these men who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, who were called and commissioned personally by Christ, who were endowed with the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders, and even more significantly, received divinely inspired and authoritative revelation from God. These men were given to the church, as Paul said in Ephesians 2.20, to lay the foundation on which the church was to be built throughout history. And they did this by founding the first churches in accordance with God's will and by receiving divine revelation through the Spirit. And their task then was to teach it and proclaim the gospel to Jews and in the case of Paul especially to the Gentiles. This they did both verbally and in their writings by providing us the written record of the gospel, the completed revelation of God's word in the New Testament. The apostles had a unique, unrepeatable, redemptive, historical role and function in the life of the church. And so by definition, there are and can, uh, there, there are and, and can be no new apostles. Their office and function was a once for all a kind of a deal in founding the church. I mean, no one today could meet the qualifications to be an apostle. Because no one today has seen the risen Christ, seen Him risen from the dead, experienced Him. No one today has been personally called, commissioned, and sent by Him. They've never received divine revelation or worked the signs and miracles of an apostle. 
The apostles laid the foundation on which the church is being built. And you do not lay a foundation for a building every few stories. The foundation is laid once for all, and then the superstructure is erected on top of that. And so long ago, 1900 years ago, the apostles fulfilled their ministry, and there are no official apostles today. Yet that doesn't stop people from claiming uh, to be modern-day apostles with apostolic authority. But loved ones, anyone who claims to be an apostle today is an imposter. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end, he said, will correspond to their deeds. In other words, they're going to get what they have coming. And so first of all, Paul says, Christ gave to the church the apostles. Next, he says, the prophets. The prophets. Paul mentioned prophets earlier in chapter 2, verse 20. Speaking of the church, he said it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In chapter 3, verse 5, speaking of the mystery of Christ, which was, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then here, of course, speaking of the resurrected, ascended Christ, he said, and he gave some as the apostles and the prophets. Now there's some question as to whether uh, prophets here refers to the Old Testament prophets. But a couple of things make, make it clear that it is not Old Testament prophets Paul is referring to. First of all, the word order Apostles first, prophets second. You know, an apostle was a New Testament office, which suggests that Paul means New Testament apostles and prophets. Second, the giving of these men to the church happened when? Post-resurrection and ascension. And that would definitely forbid us to interpret them as Old Testament prophets. And then thirdly, According to Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John, speaking of John the Baptist. The phrase, the law and the prophets, refers to the Old Testament. The Old Testament era concluded with the ministry of John the Baptist. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so it's, it's clear that Paul is not referring to Old Testament prophets, but rather to New Testament prophets in the early church. The prophets in the New Testament were also appointed by God as specially gifted men, and, and they differ from those believers uh, today, who may, today who may have the gift of prophecy. And just as an aside with regard to the gift of prophecy spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, since the completion of Scripture, prophecy has not been a means of new revelation. There is no new revelation. The gift of prophecy today would be limited to proclaiming what has already been revealed in the written word. And so the gift of prophecy today uh, is probably best understood as a gift of insight, 
into, into the biblical text and the contemporary situation and, and then a powerful combination of accurate exposition and pertinent application that brings unbelievers to a conviction of sin and to believers strengthening, upbuilding, and encouragement and consolation. Paul is not speaking about uh, the New Testament gift of prophecy here, but rather he is speaking of the office of a New Testament prophet. And along with the apostles, the New Testament prophets laid the foundation of the church around the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Old Testament prophets, the prophets of the early church sometimes foretold the future. And then before the canon of the New Testament was completed, the prophets also received direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. And their unique function was to authoritatively proclaim the word of God to the church, revealing to the people God's word, his will, and his purposes. Then at other times, the prophets merely expounded on revelation already given, exhorting, encouraging, and and strengthening God's people. And so in the early church, the truth was communicated to the church primarily by the teaching and preaching of the apostles that was supplemented by the teaching of the prophets who also also received the truth and the ability to proclaim it with clarity and power and the demonstration and authority of the Spirit. But once the New Testament was written, the office of a prophet was no longer necessary. And this, no doubt, is why in Paul's pastoral letters, written later in his ministry at a time in the history of the church when things had become more settled and fixed, there is no mention of the prophets or of the prophetic office, which seems already to have passed away. So by then, the call was for pastors and teachers to expound the scriptures and to communicate the knowledge of the truth. Now, excuse me. In the New Testament, we have all, 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 all truth and, and all the truth we need. We, we don't have any need for any further new revelations. Everything that is necessary for us is found in the Word of God. All that is needed for life and godliness is given to us in the Scriptures. And so if a man today claims to have received a new revelation of you know, some fresh truth, we should suspect him immediately. Because we no longer need direct revelations of truth. The truth is in the word of God, and God the Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word. But having said that, while while that is true, we also need to recognize that in Scripture, an element of all prophetic ministry was a spirit-given illumination enabling the prophet to understand the scriptures that had already been written and to apply them to his own day. And that element of prophetic ministry, what we might call ongoing illumination with application to individuals in the church, remains in all ministry of God's word through which the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaks to us. And so even though the ministry of the New Testament prophets, like the apostles, was a once-for-all gift, This does not mean that preachers do not preach prophetically, that is, relevantly and powerfully as the Holy Spirit enables them. But it does mean that no preacher, however gifted, is a prophet, someone who speaks new words from God. God has spoken, 
And preachers are to proclaim the exposition and application of that final and authoritative word given to us by God. And so as one commentator said, we should always doubt and question any supposed revelation that is not entirely consistent with the word of God. Indeed, the essence of wisdom is to reject altogether the term revelation as far as we are concerned and speak only of illumination. The revelation has been given once and for all. And what we need and what by the grace of God we can have and do have is illumination by the Spirit to understand the Word. The preacher should not enter his pulpit claiming to have received a revelation. His claim should be that he is a man who reads the Word and prays and believes that the Holy Spirit illumines and enlightens his understanding with the result that he has a message for the people. And so the risen, ascended Christ has given to the church some to be apostles and the prophets. And those two offices and their function, however, were temporary. They were for the once-for-all founding of the church. But the Lord Jesus Christ has made ongoing provision for the ministry of his word because there are two more offices, permanent offices, that he gave to the church, namely the evangelists and pastor teachers. So thirdly, we see that Christ gave to his church the evangelists, the evangelists. This word evangelist occurs only three times in the New Testament. Here in Ephesians 4.11, in Acts 21.8, Philip is named as an evangelist. In fact, Philip is the one person specifically called an evangelist in Scripture. And then in 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul exhorts Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. So the word evangelist occurs only three times. However, the verb form of the word to evangelize, which means to proclaim the good news, well, that word is used some 54 times in the New Testament. So obviously then the term evangelist refers to one who proclaims the good news of the gospel. And since all Christians are called when we have an appropriate opportunity to tell others of the good news of the gospel, the gift of an evangelist, which is given only to some, must be something different. So who were and, and who are these evangelists? Well, the risen Lord has uniquely gifted some in his church for the work of evangelism. And the work of the evangelist is to preach and explain the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to those who have not yet believed. He is a proclaimer of salvation by grace through faith in the Son of God. And New Testament evangelists were missionaries, church planters, itinerant preachers, much like the apostles, but without the title and miraculous gifts. They were men who went where the gospel of Christ had not been proclaimed. And they led people to faith in the Savior. And then they taught the new believers the word, built them up, and then moved on to new territory. And so evangelists then are, are those who's, who, who God has especially equipped to travel from place to place with the good news of the gospel. But they can also be associated with a local church. As we mentioned earlier, Timothy uh, was exhorted to do the work of an evangelist.
And so evangelists are uniquely gifted men given to the church to communicate the gospel in order to reach the lost. They are those who take the gospel to new places, like our missionaries today. But it would also include those called and gifted by God to itinerant ministries directed mainly toward proclaiming the gospel to the unbelieving world around us here at home. The evangelists include some of the greatest men in the history of the church. Men like George Whitfield, who were, who were used mightily to spur great revivals that, that changed history. Spurgeon said, these are they who preach the gospel in divers places and find it the power of God unto salvation. They are founders of churches, breakers of new soil, men of a missionary spirit who build not on other men's foundations, but dig out for themselves. I scarcely know of any greater blessing to the church than the sending forth of earnest, tireless, anointed men of God, taught of the Lord to be winners of souls. And the church today greatly needs spirit-empowered evangelists. I mean, men who are especially gifted to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to, to a lost and dying culture. Does anyone doubt the need of that in, in today's world? Just a note here before moving on. You know, each of us, whether we have this specific gift of, of an evangelist or not, we all have the privilege of sharing the gospel with others. While those gifted in evangelism are to lead the way in proclaiming the gospel, this doesn't mean that the rest of us who are not evangelists are excused from the obligation to tell others about Jesus. I mean, we all share in the task. So we should never be tempted to leave evangelism to the, the experts. Because Christ wants to use each one of us to spread the good news of the gospel in our own unique spheres of influence. And now fourthly, we see that Christ gave to his church the shepherds and teachers. The shepherds and teachers. Now there's been debate as to whether shepherds and teachers uh, are two different offices. But I would agree with those who say that they are one office. If they were two separate offices, then we would expect Paul to have said he gave some to be the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. But Paul writes the shepherds and teachers linking the two together. And generally speaking, these two offices are found in the same man. He may be a better shepherd than he is teacher or a better teacher uh, than shepherd, but generally these two offices are found in the same man. And so it would seem best to see shepherds and teachers as referring to one single gift so that we could speak of the gift of shepherd teacher or pastor teacher. And the Greek word translated here as shepherd can also be translated pastor as it is in most translations. And this is the only place in the New Testament where Pastor is applied to someone who holds a ministry position in the church. Although the related verb to shepherd appears several times in this sense. Shepherd or pastor 
refers to one who has pastoral oversight of others. His functions are similar to those of overseers and elders. They, they exercise leadership through nurturing and caring for the congregation. They manage the church and are to be respected and esteemed very highly in love because of their work, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. And this word is based on the idea of, of shepherding. And in a good sense of the word. And it looks to Jesus who described himself as the good shepherd. And who is referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep and the, and the chief shepherd. When Jesus challenged Peter there in John 21, when Jesus challenged Peter with the words, do you love me more than these? You know, do you love me? And again a third time, do you love me? And after Peter confessed, Lord, you, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs, tend or shepherd my sheep, and feed my sheep. And in that, our Lord commissioned Peter as a pastor or a shepherd over his flock. And later in his first epistle, Peter exhorted the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly being examples to the flock. And this word shepherd really, really tells us what a pastor's work is all about. A true pastor is a shepherd who has a heart for the sheep of Christ's flock to, to tend and to watch over them, to protect them and care for them and, and to lead and, and feed them as the flock of Christ. You know, the evangelist uh, finds them as lost sheep wandering in the wilderness and brings them into the flock. And then the pastor uh, seeks to lead them into the green pastures of God's word to, to protect them from wolves, to confront and admonish them when they're in sin, to minister to them when they're sick, to comfort them when they're dying, to point them to the cross in the hour when faith may be weak, you know, to enter into their sorrows. That's the, that's the work of a real pastor. And no theological seminary, no college or university can make a pastor. It can give someone an education that is valuable and useful. But it can never make a pastor. It is the Holy Spirit of God alone who gives a man a pastor's heart and fills him with love for the people of God. Spurgeon says of pastors, these are sent to feed the flock. They abide in one place and instruct converts which have been gathered. What would the church be without her pastors? Let those who have tried to do without them be a warning to you. And so the Lord Jesus has given to his church shepherd or pastor teachers. Of course, the word teacher is self-explanatory. And the fact that the pastor is also called a teacher tells us that the minister's most important function is to feed God's flock with God's word. And loved ones, we have to emphasize this again and again and again and again today because of the increasingly secular views of the ministry. I mean, some pastors have taken corporate titles, calling themselves CEOs and, and acting more as entrepreneurs than as a pastor teacher. And sometimes people have expectation of pastors that no one could ever meet. One commentator told of a job description he saw for the perfect pastor. 
This is what he said. This is what he read. Here's the perfect pastor. He condemns sin but never upsets anyone. He works, he works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the janitor. He makes $60 a week and gives about $50 a week to the poor. He is 28 years old and has been preaching for 30 years. The perfect pastor smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He spends all his time evangelizing the unchurched and is always in his office when needed. You know, the, the problem when people want their pastor to do everything is simply this. That if he's doing everything, then he's not going to be able to do the one thing well that he has been given, specifically given to the church to do. And that is to faithfully, clearly, and seriously teach the word of God. You know, Paul's philosophy of ministry indicates that the urgent priority in the church must be placed on Bible teaching. And this is a full-time calling to which the pastor must be set apart and for which he must be supplied with time and with prayers. I mean, those who are called and gifted to serve as pastor teachers must first devote themselves uh, you know, primarily to the teaching of God's word, which also means devoting themselves to prayer and to study. But the problem today is that pastors are valued more for their personality than for their faithfulness in teaching the Bible. And this preference for entertainment over, over Bible exposition is in large part the main cause of the spiritual weakness and compromise that we see in the church today. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ builds his church through pastors devoted to teaching God's word and through congregations who desire faithful Bible teaching above all else. And this tells us, by the way, what the content uh, of our sermons should be. Teaching the Bible. I mean, the flock of God is not well fed on endless humor and, and, and stories from the pastor's personal life. And while those things, you know, tug at heartstrings and are, and are entertaining, you know, and, and, and usually very popular, the pastor is called to teach the Word of God. And neither is the pulpit to be given over to current topics or to some social, moral, or political cause that has the pastor's attention, that's the hobby horse that, that he's riding at that time. Look, there are a large number of cultural issues that we might address. Abortion, homosexual marriage, transgenderism, human trafficking, pornographic materials in our schools. I mean, who in the world can argue against Christians speaking out on issues like these? But the question is this. What is the work that God has called the pastor to? And the clear answer of the word of God is that pastors are to teach the Bible so that the people of God are equipped for every good work so that some of them will then be called to go out and engage the culture on these very moral and political issues. You see, loved ones, whenever pastors turn from their calling to teach the word of God, the church is weakened and consequently so is its impact on society. 
and our message to the world is, is confused. You see, our message is the good news of a crucified and risen Savior and the new life that he gives. And certainly, I mean certainly, faithful expository preaching will touch on a wide range of topics, including these, uh, those of social concern. But the agenda will be that of the Holy Spirit speaking in and through the Word of God rather than some worldly concern. I mean, the best way for the church to influence society is for pastors to preach the whole counsel of God and for the people of God to become more holy and to walk in a manner worthy of their calling before the world. It is the light of the gospel shining out through godly lives that will bring true transformation to society one convert at a time as their hearts are transformed by the power of the gospel. And then these new believers will speak out and share and and vote according to the truths of the Bible which they know because they were taught them in church. I mean, the single thing the church needs most is the Word of God, because without the Word, there will be no convert, since, as Peter says, you have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. And there will be no Christian growth or sanctification without the Word, because Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by the truth, your Word is truth. Without the faithful, consistent, serious teaching of the Bible, there will be no wisdom for godly decision-making, since Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And there will be little true spiritual blessing, since Psalm 19.8 says, The precepts or the word of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And this is the emphasis we find throughout the New Testament. I mean, early in in Jesus' ministry, and I I love this story. Early in Jesus' ministry, I mean, large crowds were were flocking to him because they had heard about his miracles of healing. And you can read about this in Mark chapter 1. And so the crowds were, were coming. I mean, multitudes, multitudes were coming. And Jesus went out early to pray by himself and And then instead of capitalizing on on his fame and and all the attention, when the disciples came looking for him, he said, hey, man, man, everyone's looking for you. In other words, they're saying, hey, Jesus, this is a big deal, man. You should see all the people. I mean, they're coming. Jesus, this could be big. I mean, the news may even be here. This is big. But when his teaching ministry was being distracted, Jesus said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. We see the same emphasis in the book of Acts. When there were some needs among the widows uh, that were causing a dispute, Peter refused to be the one who solved the problem. Instead, he had them put together a group of men to deal with the issue. 
And he said of himself and the other apostles, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is the primary task of the pastor teacher, to give himself to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. I mean, this was Paul's instruction to Timothy for the challenges that he would face. I mean, problems were going to occur in the church. I mean, every kind of godlessness and falsehood and sin. But Paul exhorted Timothy to stick to the ministry of the word. He wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And in light of this, Paul charged Timothy to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And the Bible calls for pastors to be teachers. As one man said, teaching is not to be done by aloof academicians, but by pastors who work among the people. Pastoring is valuable to sermon preparation. The Bible is best understood and taught within the context of pastoral ministry. With this combination of pastoral care and faithful Bible teaching, the church is well-led and well-fed. A ministry starts with the teaching of God's Word by faithful and gifted pastors. But this certainly does not replace other ministries in the church, but rather it is through the teaching of God's word that pastors equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. But we'll get to that next week, Lord willing. Though there are significant differences between the gifts that Paul lists here in verse 11, which is why they're they're given different names and listed individually, All four of them relate in some way to the ministry of teaching. And although there are neither apostles nor prophets in the original sense today, there are evangelists to proclaim the gospel and pastor teachers to tend the flock and expound the word. And we learn from this that God has blessed his people throughout redemptive history with gifted men to proclaim his word. And as the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I mean, these leaders, these evangelists and pastor teachers are instruments in the Redeemer's hands used for for our sanctification. I mean, their teaching strengthens us, and as Paul says next, equips us for ministry. And so the main point to keep in mind with all of these gifts, and especially with pastor teachers, is that they must be centered on the Word of God. They must be centered on the Word of God. If a pastor does not concentrate on preaching and teaching the Word, he may be a nice man, even a godly man, but he is not doing the main work of a shepherd teacher. And I am absolutely opposed to and absolutely reject 
the modern evangelical trend to dumb down or even do away with the systematic expositional preaching of the word. J.I. Packer rightly contends that the well-being of the church today depends in large measure on a revival of preaching in the Puritan vein. And then he adds, to the Puritan, faithful preaching was the basic ingredient in faithful pastoring. You know, the teaching and preaching of God's word is the greatest need of the church today. But there's a famine in the land, isn't there? Not of food or drink, but of the word of God. And we see it in the church in this country. Teaching and preaching of God's word is is the greatest need of the church today. It's what builds up the church. One man said, nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. It is teaching which, which builds up the church. It is teachers who are needed most. And to that I say amen. Let me close with this. One commentator I read uh, shared this account. He said, recently I heard of a pastor who often began preparation of his Sunday morning sermons on Saturday night as he watched television in his easy chair. Many pastors have a two or three year barrel of sermons which they recycle, usually in succeeding churches. No wonder so many churches are stagnant. Lame sermonettes produce Christianettes. And then he said, those who stand in the place of the foundational apostles and prophets as evangelists and pastor teachers must open wide the foundational teaching of the Old and New Testaments if there is to be true church growth. And those who receive the teaching must listen well, take notes, and put it into practice in their lives. Amen. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. 4400, or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org, calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love.